I could stack it on some books. Yeah. Go get yourself a nice copy of the yellow pages that you probably have lying around. You've got Benioff book, risk analysis, a bunch of finance books. Let's see. Uh, you seem like the kind of guy that has sapiens lying around, but never opened it, <laughs> which I respect. Uh, I am an audio booker usually. So most books I have were gifted to me. So you listened to sapiens is what you're kind of telling me. I did listen to sapiens. You disgust me. You disgust me. Welcome to What's Your Basis from Schechter, a boutique financial services firm in Birmingham, Michigan. Today, we're talking about the traditional 60-40 portfolio with Aaron Hodari, Chief Investment Officer, Joe Drost, Senior Investment Advisor, and Max Hunt, Vice President of Investments at Schechter. The traditional 60-40 portfolio. Joe, what does that mean? Uh, The 60-40 portfolio has been this kind of heuristic construct for years that advisors have used or investors have used to say that 60% of your portfolio should be in equities and 40% of it should be in fixed income. And that portfolio will help you you know, get to your return target or your investment goals. Well, so what constitutes the 60-40 portfolio and why use it? The idea behind the 60-40 portfolio has been, you know, as you get older in age, the 40 becomes greater. You put more fixed income in there. You want less risk and that equities typically are riskier and have higher returns, which you want earlier in your career. And that on the back end of your career, you want less risk. So lower equities, higher fixed income, more certainty in returns. And the traditional thought was that, you know, fixed income is less risky and has yield and equities have higher risk and higher return. So you make that portfolio over your life. It changes over the time frame of meeting your investment goals. And there's a lot of different asset classes that I think people think of, but it really boils down to equity and fixed income. You either own a return stream and you're lending against something, or you own a company and you know you have that upside inside of there. So you're saying 60% should be, well, the traditional sense, 60% people would put their money in the stock market and the other 40% would go into fixed income, um, which would be theoretically a safer asset class. Theoretically. And I think that this has been taught in business schools and finance classes and economics classes for decades. And when it started being taught, you know, you had fixed income that was yielding 12 and a half percent back in 1985. And now that's come down significantly where you have the, you know, the Barclays ag yielding, you know, less than 2%. It's really hard to uh, just make 2% in a fixed income portfolio and say that you're not going to outspend the income you're getting. So, Joe, what I kind of don't get about, I mean, there, I, I get the, you know, the academic argument. It's, you know, I'm 30, I have an income that is my fixed income in a way. So I get that I should have you know, 60%, maybe yeah. 70% in equity that, you know, is a little riskier, but I can make more money. But there's there's so much more out there than just equity and fixed income in, in the traditional sense. Me, you know, buying a stock or buying a bond, you know, are there, are there, there are there's other ways to achieve that if I want yield? And so why, why is it 60-40? Why isn't it, I don't know, why isn't it 50-30? 20 and the 20 can be, I don't know, anything I want. I want to invest in Taylor Swift's you know, royalty <laughs> catalog. Like what counts as an asset and why isn't there, you know, 10 different uh, 
you know, 10 different pieces to that instead of just two. It's it's too simple, I think. Well, I think it's you go that an asset class is just a grouping of like investments at the end of the day, right? In the in the most broad, simplistic sense. And sure, if in your example, you could say that you put, you know, 20% in real estate or 20% in real estate debt. Well, real estate debt is really fixed income at the end of the day. And the underlying asset is that real estate instead of the underlying asset in a corporate bond that the underlying asset is that you know that corporation right they're you're take they're taking out a loan and that's what you're looking at as far as the asset underlying it but there's a lot of different types of alternative credits that are out there um, whether it's you know private credit or you start looking at these you know music royalties as you referenced or healthcare royalties or aviation finance or you know Think of like making loans against, I mean, people are securitizing um, like YouTube streams right now, right? If there's an asset behind it and it's more credit oriented, it really falls into that credit asset class. Just like if you are making an investment in real estate from an equity perspective and you're owning it, you take it, it's an equity like investment, right? I think of it as there's a lot of different sports that are out there, um, but then inside of those different types of sports where you have, all right, you have baseball, you have football, you have basketball. So they all kind of fall under the same sports umbrella, but they're all different in how you look at them, right? It's just how under the credit umbrella, quote unquote, you have high yield, you have, you know, private credit and they have different risk characteristics. And that's the biggest thing to understand, right? You have to understand the risk dynamics. What about something that's both though? I mean, Aaron, Aaron, you do this you know, you know this better than anyone, you know, here it's why wouldn't I be able to have just 100 percent equities and say, well, the 40 percent of equities that you know have really high yields, I'm going to make that my fixed income. You know, is there an argument for 100 zero? Yeah, it's a good question. How do you think about, you know, yeah, what what's the so, breakdown? So many questions go through my mind in this conversation. I think like being in a seat that we sit in. There's no one answer. And I think you have, you know, and with when you talk to different investors and different people and friends of mine, everyone kind of looks at this stuff a little different. And and when you were, I was just thinking when you were talking about bonds initially, and then you got into kind of all these alternative credits, we didn't talk about what the risk in bonds was. And so I think there's like two parts of it because the first thing that comes to my mind is, okay, well, you told me that bonds are yielding two, but now there's all these all other alternative bonds that yield eight, nine, 10. I'll take those, right? Wouldn't any investor say, I'll take those. I want the eight to 10. Why would I buy the 2% bond? Then it comes back to, okay, well, how much more risk are you taking in that eight to 10 bond? And I think it's important for people to understand that there's not only one type of risk. So I think when people look at the, the traditional bonds that they like or they're used to, I buy investment grade muni bonds, I buy investment grade corporate bonds and stuff like that. You have a much lower principal loss risk than you do probably buying anything that's yielding eight to 12% just by nature. Yeah. So you're talking about yeah. just fixed income from a principal loss Kind of right. vein. Well, right? I think I think that's where people go first. Correct. Right? Correct. But, Agreed. But but are they ignoring? You know, are people aware of what now buying that two percent money good two percent bond duration, can, right? So or inflation. That, so maybe I think it's maybe good for you, Joe, for a second just to say, what is the other risk then? So so maybe people would be more comfortable taking credit risk to get that eight to 12% return if they understood yeah. the risk that were sitting in that 2% bond that they didn't have credit risk with. 
Yeah, and I think that risk comes down to how you define it or how you're an investor or an advisor defines it, right? You, I think we've all met people that own businesses and they think that their business is the less risky asset in their portfolio um, that, or that they own, right? I mean, when you think of fixed income, right? Like in today's age, like duration is it in some of these indices are the highest it's ever been. And so most people don't think of duration. I think it's a little more complex of a topic. And most people, to your point, just simple think, terms. Yeah, simple they just think of default. They think default, right? No, but simple terms explain duration. Oh, and dura- duration means kind of the tenor of the bond. So if a bond has a longer duration, it means it matures over a longer amount of time. But that also means that if interest rates go up, the price of the bond will be affected more if it has a longer duration. So that's, that's where, to me, it feels like it can be equity. Or in a sense, if I'm buying you know, something that's yielding 8 to 12, Good chance that that yield has come from the fact that you know the bonds trading at eighty cents on the dollar or sixty cents on the dollar, which is which could be true, right? And I mean, all of a sudden think... I'm getting capital appreciation, right? Because there's good plenty point, of people that are investing that way. So yeah, I'm just, that's a good point. Just wondering, right? yeah, to what extent does that start to look like equity? Like last year, there's a good question. Like I, I haven't thought of it that way, Max. But last year we did a distressed credit fund where where right. our manager is buying really distressed bonds. He's buying yeah. bonds at 50, 60 cents on the dollar, right? He's not buying it for the yield in the bond. He's buying it because he wants that 50 to go to 100. Yep. Most investors I know would be thrilled if their stock price went from 50 to 100. Yeah. So it's a, it's an interesting point. And that's yeah, the right and that a I whole think different ball boils, game there. But that boils into right what is the coupon on this bond versus the yield you were getting, right? If you're getting a 5% yield and you're buying it at 50 cents on the dollar, well the yield, I'm sorry, a 5% coupon at 50 cents on a dollar, the yield is much higher than what the coupon rate rate is, correct? Not to mention right. you're assuming that you're going to reinvest those coupons at what today at what the yield of that coupon is. So if you get an 8% coupon bond and rates are at 2%, like you're not going to invest it in that to get that same return most of the time. So it's a lot harder to get to that total that total return versus the yield, right? You have to separate those out. Right. I, I guess that that delineation maybe can just come down to something as simple as, you know, the coupon is income, so therefore it's fixed income and, you know, if mm-hmm. I'm buying 50 cent dollars and hoping that one day it's going to make yeah. good, it's kind of more like equity or. But, but maybe go back to Aaron's example. Go back to Aaron's example of like a distressed investor, right? Distressed investors. People think, all right, you're buying credit. But distressed investing is way more correlated with equity markets than it is with fixed income markets, right? Like a strategy like that. So when you think of a portfolio, right, you're your correlation for that strategy is going to be more towards equities than versus fixed income, right? And, 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 yeah, and we put it in that we put it in that bucket too. So when we did distress, we weren't like, "Hey, we're just buying you know cheap bonds." No, we were like, "We're buying a lot of risk because half these companies have already filed for bankruptcy." So yeah, uh, right. So I, and then I, maybe, agree. I agree. Aaron, could you maybe yeah. describe kind of the difference from what a yield is versus like a distribution from types of strategies because they're kind of two different things that is a risk people should understand. Oh man, this drives me crazy. Um, so when I I'll, when when I hear investors like you know people, and I think this is misleading, right? Part of the industry is misleading. Is you'll see an investment, and it'll say we have a nine percent distribution rate, right? And I'm going to give you a hundred dollars, and they're going to give you back nine dollars a year. Well, that hundred dollars gets invested. If that hundred dollars is earning two percent per year, two dollars per year, they can still give you nine, right? But the investor 
like you're, you know, you got a hundred dollars, it earns two, and then you distribute out nine, you got $91 left. Yeah. And it drives me crazy that people are like thinking about the 9% and not about the fact that ha- like the majority of that was principal return, you know, going back kind of to like you. a Ponzi scheme, right? They need it's other Ponzi people to pay scheme. in, right? It's a Ponzi <laughs> scheme. It drives me nuts. And ultimately, so I think, and, and that's what we spend a lot of time and in, in, in Joe, when we, you know, when we're Max, when we're talking about this and looking at managers, it's forget what your distribution rate is. What is your portfolio earning? Um, and I think I think this is less prevalent today than this was back in the 80s and 90s when you had more funds with managed distributions. Today, you still hear about it, and there are some funds, and there are sometimes good reasons to have a managed distribution. But I think the market has moved away from managed distributions in general um, uh, at, to some point. But there are a lot of products out there that investors are hit with every day that have that whole that issue of it's a return of principle. It drives me crazy. I, I want to bring. I want to. I want to pivot for a second and just pull up a chart. Or not pull up a chart. I can, we're not sharing screen. I wish you guys could all see us. But uh, but um, it's from the Wall Street Journal, and I've been referencing this chart for years. And I think it's from like 2016. And it uh, there's a chart that says rolling the dice, and it basically said the estimate of what an investor needed to do to earn seven and a half percent. In 1995, an investor who wanted a seven and a half percent return could put 100 percent into of their fixed income. Into fixed income. Into tre- I think into treasuries. Treasuries. Actually. So risk free. Risk free. Treasuries. 100 percent. You want seven and a half today? Well, there's your two- money. Good. In 2005, they could only put 50 percent of their 52, but 50 percent of their money in bonds, and the other stuff had to be in stocks, real estate, private equity, whatever it is, but more risk. In 2015, this number came down to 12%. Um, In order to earn 7.5% based on expected returns, an investor could not put more than 12% of their money into safe bonds. Today, it probably looks a lot like it did in 2015, because I think in 2015, interest rates uh, on bonds were probably similar to where they are today. You had a little spike after that. But the point is, is... For investors who want a specific return or are thinking 10%, 8% in their minds, you can't own a lot of the safe stuff. And it's a problem. It's a problem for retirees. It's a problem for people that are building portfolios that are massive about problem for pensions as well. But where's, where's the answer come from then? And that's 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 kind of going back to this conversation of the, you know, the kind of principal getting a coupon versus getting appreciation on a, like the bond, you know, where does that come from? If, if, if it's not going to come from your fixed income and it's not going to come from just holding SPY, you want the where scariest is it coming answer? from now? Do you want the scariest answer? I don't. I don't, I don't think know. It, I don't know if I'm ready for this. Well, I don't. Now, everything's a possibility, right? So we deal with potential outcomes in the investing world, yeah. right? We never certainties. Anyone who we're tells not predicting, we we're preparing, is what my but, line always. But is. the scariest potential outcome is that seven and a half percent is impossible. Because now, what happens if public equity markets do zero for the next ten years? Which, by the way, you know, it's probably possible. has hap- is, is happened. Two thousand to twenty ten, right there. Exactly. Yeah. So I'd say, you know, I'm looking on rolling 10 year periods. There are probably 10% of rolling 10 year periods. I'd actually like to know this stat um, of how many rolling 10 year periods produced a 0% return in the equity market. So now you get zero on public equities and you get call it 2% on bonds. 
How are you getting to seven and, and, and that half? doesn't take into account any type of inflation that comes uh, as well, yeah, right? Now, 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 you're giving, returns, right? now you're giving me heartburn. Now you're giving me yeah, right, heartburn. Everyone seems to just be anchored to this idea of, you know, diversification in 60-40. And to your point, Aaron, like, I want seven, I want eight, I want 10. It's like, do you understand that if risk-free rates are at zero, at one, that if you're trying to get, you're trying to get 10 times the return of a risk-free rate with the same amount of risk, like it just doesn't exist. And that goes to, is risk volatility, is risk loss of capital? I mean, we could have that conversation for days, but I mean, in today's environment, not to mention- But like, right, buybacks are way more prevalent than dividends today, too. You used to get a nice little dividend yield, at least from your equities, right? So that's why the total return of the S&P always outperforms the price return. I mean, dividends are at historic lows as well. There's more buybacks. So an above average return, an above average dividend yield in the S&P 500 now, I'm not sure exactly what the stat is, but it's below 2%. And it's something something in the in the neighborhood of one point seven to one point eight. Yeah. And these are I mean, this is my opinion. They're usually crap companies. And there's something to be said about a dividend by definition. A dividend right. is saying, I don't think don't my company to do with is exp- I don't think my company's cheap enough to buy back the stock. I don't know what to do with the with the money in my own company to make my company grow. Think ATT, or you know, they can go out and make another terrible deal. Or I just think it's better to give this you know, stock to grandma, grandpa, the advisors, anyone who can figure out what to do, because we can't get you the kind of return that you used to get. And that's that's what a dividend is basically telling you. So this brings up a good point. So um, so uh, I remember talking to a, a consultant once about uh, yield. Right. And generating yield in a portfolio and for taxable investors. And his point was. Like yield sounds great, but investors focus too much on yield because all they should care about is return. If I buy Apple and it goes up and I need cash flow for my portfolio, I can sell a little bit of Apple and take that out. But investors who want cash flow or want to take money from their portfolio for living expenses anchor on the fact that I need to generate a specific yield. Yeah. When in reality, they should be focused on generating a total return in a risk managed way. If you spend some of that total return, it's fine. And if you don't, you compounds. But from a tax taxable invest, investor's perspective, building this whole portfolio for this distribution rate can also add a ton of risk to a portfolio. And I think the better way that, that, that I think about it more is build a portfolio that manages the risk perspective of that investor, gets as diversified as possible. But don't be anchored on like, I need to generate a specific yield at the overall portfolio level. People hate any illiquidity when it comes to something like that. And then on top of that, Aaron, like, like, do you notice a, and in my mind, it's funny, you know, a kind of a, a significant difference between the tax hit kind of feeling of selling stock versus taking oh, yeah. income distribution. Yeah. Why oh, yeah. are people more afraid to sell I the don't stock? Get it. Even if I don't get it. It doesn't make any sense. It makes you're, no you're sense. the same rate if it's short term. Right. And, oh, what, but what about if you've hold, held the stock long enough? Then you get a long-term it's long-term, term, it's even better, yeah. right? It's even better. It's crazy. It's, it's uh, not as sense. if you can't rebuy the stock, right? And it's 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 strange. And it's uh, but it, it's it, an old way of thinking. And it's, it's yeah. what brings me to this kind of, 
okay, if this is the world that we're going to be living in, where where rates are going to be this low for a long time, and we're going to keep having yeah. regimes that want to keep it that way because optically the economy is tied to you know more and more people paying attention to the stock market, being on Robinhood, you know, <laughs> following their GameStop and getting their yeah. candies. Now, looking forward, look, look at us, look at Gen Z. What are those? What what's their expectation going to be? Because they're not used to seven and a half percent or ten percent, and they were never born into you know fifteen percent, you know Reagan esque uh, interest interest rates. What are they going to be looking for in a portfolio? And and yeah, I think it's way it? It, it's way different, right? Like in like we can move on from like the like rates have just been artificially low for so long that every every single investor, every pension, insurance company, everyone's been looking for yield, right? So do you that's think why we'll you go s- back. Do you think you do you think this is just a a, a crazy blip or I mean or, hi- you know, historically like right it- you see stuff mean revert. I mean, but now you have we're in a different regime because so many central banks are doing the same thing. You've never had that type of coordination across the entire world. Um, but everyone's looking for yield and that's why all there's these all these alternative credit asset classes that they call them alternative credit but Groups have been doing like syndicated loans for years, right? People have been doing music royalties and have been doing healthcare royalties. Like these have existed for years. It wasn't really available to the masses previously, which is great because in some of those senses, you're just getting like a diversified stream of beta. So from a portfolio perspective, you have lower risk, but your the underlying investment could be riskier. But what if we? If we get away from kind of the yield argument for a while, what if we go to that, the 60 part, the equity side of the portfolio, right? Like, Max, you've spent your entire career in the equity market. Like, wh- how many people out there don't invest in kind of private investments that they're missing all of their returns because companies are staying private for longer? That's that's exactly where I was going to go with it. It's two things. It's, you know, one, small and mid caps. Publicly, I mean, you, you go and look at mid caps last year. It was a fantastic year for the equity market post COVID, especially, and people were putting more money in. Mid caps outperformed everything sig- very significantly. Yeah, but you just didn't see the kind of exposure that a lot of people probably should have had to it. And you know, whatever the reason is, there it's there's there's a million different reasons. I could probably spend another hour talking about why people are afraid of that area, but. A lot of it is kind of like you said, it's 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 migrated or it's stayed in the private market where you're seeing a lot of companies that are, you know, one billion below or, you know, one to five billion kind of in this mid cap, mid cap range. They stay private longer. And if you're a 60, 40 advisor who's exactly, you know, you know, I was talking about earlier, you know are, you know, running your grandpa's 60-40 portfolio. Yeah. You're a dinosaur now. I think there's half as many public companies today as there were in 1998. So we're dealing with a, a, you know, one, when you ask, where do you go? I absolutely believe a portfolio needs to be looking at the private markets. Absolutely. Do I need to be a multimillionaire to to get in there though? And And the SEC knows this and they're making it easier for regular investors to access private markets, both real estate, private equity, private credit. There are platforms that allow investors to access this. As they should though. But I want to go back to a point you made, Joe. You said, or I forget which one of you guys said, you said something about mean reversion. I think Max asked, you know, are we in a low rate environment forever? 
or are we going to have mean reversion to high rates? Rates. My personal view is that we have literally 100, 150 years of economic data of where interest rates and stock and public equity prices have gone. That's not that long. And we're also in a completely different world now because back then GDP growth rates were six, five, yeah. you know, five six percent in real terms. Today, if we can get two and a half, three percent, you know, real GDP growth, we're happy. So we're in a lower growth world. Um, more, you know, more economies are developed is, you know, China and some people's estimation estimation is a developed economy. I remember back in, in 2008, 2009, people were like, oh no, is China not going to hit 9% GDP growth rate? Yeah. Today we're like, oh no, is China not going to hit six? So GDP growth rates are lower. So I believe that we might be in a situation with low interest rates for longer. We're about to print. Inflation. We're about to print one of the less biggest inflation, inflation less numbers inflation. we've had in forever. And less inflation happens. It's it, yeah. right now. It's frightening that that inflation's going to be where inflation's going to be, and the Fed's making this pretty much made this stance that they say this is really transitory and and we have yet right. to see it right. So that's, how, how many investors out there right now and, and professional investors? have ever even managed through inflation, have seen inflation, right? Probably, probably 10%, if not less. I, I mean, some of the trading desks have like mock days where they talk about like inflation coming down, like how, because traders haven't experienced it, investors haven't experienced it. It's a yeah. whole- Think about, think about wow. all, of, uh, all of us in the, um, you know, me and my peers in the investment world, thinking that, you know, effectively stocks only go up by the dip. And, you know, buy Tesla forever because as long as it's an open-ended growth story, it's worth owning. We have to own growth, blah, blah, blah. Value is dead. In inflation, and in a significant inflation world, this is completely new to anyone that's been in the industry for only only a decade or a decade yeah. and a half. It's it's mind blowing you know, where people are going to find these things, and I, I, and I don't know what to think of, and I don't know what to expect, and I think it's really hard to make these market predictions. Like, but I think that's yesterday. why we make a portfolio of a bunch of things that right. should work, right? They work together, right? It's an entire. If you think of it as a team, you're not looking. Do, do, Deutsche Bank is saying, "Oh, we're really worried about inflation." Goldman's response to it is like, "We're, we're no. not that worried." Someone's wrong, and these are really smart people, and I think that, and and I agree with what I'll you're bet saying, on Jones. Goldman. I don't want to bet on either, right? I, what I want to do take is build the a portfolio, take the median and build a portfolio that can do okay in either scenario. Exactly. We'll be okay if inflation crushes it. We'll be okay if there's no inflation. And don't ever take such a big bet. Um, that's just, that's where, you, that's where investors get hurt. And it was fun, like, I, I mentioned something before this call to you guys is I was reading an article where they, I think it might've been the Wall Street Journal or New York Times where they were, they were um, interviewing Gen Z investors. And they asked someone like, oh, do you own stocks or this? And the, the guy's dad was in the article and the and the, the younger investor was like, I'm all crypto. I'm 100% crypto. <laughs> and he's but, done you know, great. or She's done great. Right. Phenomenal. I mean, I mean, I haven't looked at what Bitcoin's doing today, but it's, have to uh, understand the difference. Well, between they've still done great, but just but doing great doesn't mean you're a good investor. Doing it can mean you got no, lucky. it can make you think you're a good investor. And to me, yeah, it's you know, I, I heard this phrase once and I think it's it's hilarious. And, you know, it applies now to Gen Z is nothing's more dangerous than a first year investor with three initiation reports and one good stock pick under their belt. Like they're they're thinking that they've never done anything wrong. They're perfect, you know, and they must have a formula. That overconfidence already, bias. Right. And it's it's it always comes back to the same thing. You know, the more you learn, the less you know. And and that's 
that's something that we need to look for in managers that are going to be able to make that pivot and realize they are beneficial. Yeah, this is this environment has helped them. Well, but right, this environment's different. And if you look at once again the 60-40 construct, the idea usually is is that when the economy's doing well, which it is done well for 12 years now. Rates should naturally go up, right? They're supposed to, they, historically. Which they, which they haven't, right? So it's been, a, it's been a weird investing paradigm. And then it's, all right, are rates going up because the economy's doing better? Are they going up because inflation's rising? Or are they coming, right? It's We've had GDP growth. We've had rising asset. We've had asset price inflation, financial yes. asset price inflation. We Huge haven't point. had price inflation. And it looks like, it looks like it's finally going to appear. Whether it appears at two and a half, three percent, or eight percent, that's the huge risk. I think the world can handle two and a half, three percent inflation. I don't know what happens if we see eight. I don't know. Right. And I so don't think we. I, I, I guess the the big question, the big question, I guess to to kind of leave you guys with, I want to hear the wisdom. If all the charts that are out there that people love to share that say, hey. We look for the first time. We've never gotten to this specific level except for the dot-com bubble. How do we manage through that in a 60-40 portfolio? Please don't. Please don't have a 60-40 portfolio. Please don't own 40% of your portfolio in eight-year duration bonds paying 2%. Then what's your 40? Um. Maybe I, I like to rethink the 60-40, right? I like yeah. to include private private equity in a portfolio. I like to include real estate. I like to include private credit. I, I like to include middle market direct lending. And, and if we can find good managers that, you know, in aviation finance or litigation finance and stuff like that, it's not easy to find this stuff. But finding other things to include, I think, is important, especially today, Um and we still do own some bonds, right? It's not like we're abandoning everything in a portfolio, but I like diversification. Joe? I, I agree with that. I think that you need to have these alternative credits in there and understand that this might be a little more a liquid, right? So we'll get a, a liquidity premium, hopefully. Like we're not going to, we want to make sure that a lot of the portfolio is floating rate because if rates go up, we'll do well. Right. Yeah, I know we're I know we're coming to an end, but I have to make a point real quick. And we always say this to investors about illiquidity. Do you really need a hundred percent of your portfolio to, tomorrow, or do you need maybe forty percent tomorrow or fifty percent? What if I told you the other thirty percent we could get in a quarter, you know, or the other ten percent in a year? And so investors are so scared of illiquidity, but I think you know, investors have PTSD still from two thousand one and two thousand and eight. I think there's still a lot of that. Um, out there and everyone thinks that they need to be liquid. And, but at the same time, everyone owns a house that's super illiquid, right? And it, it's kind of not in this mindset. market. People are knocking on doors. And oh, buying yeah. Houses. That's, exactly. uh, yeah, I, I want to take it back to what Aaron said earlier about, you know, these, these, your typical investor of a, you know, the, the, the people that have the majority of the wealth right now, seven and a half percent, that's a target, you know, seven, seven and a half, eight percent, high single digits. There's some firms out there that managed 50 billion, levered up, they managed 350 billion. And their goal is specifically to grind out 8% a year before tax. Those are your millenniums, citadels, all of those guys. If you could pull 7.5% of that much money, you're a multi billionaire. And I think that's going to be the future for 
pretty much our entire our entire careers and probably that's going to be what Gen Z is going to be targeting. I tell you something funny about, can I tell you something funny about investors is you show them that millennium can do, you know, historically they're going to deliver that eight to 10% return for you per year for you. And they love it. And you put them in millennium and the stock market goes up 30 and they hate millennium. Yep. Cause they're only it's, up seven or eight. They, you know, it's like, Hey, you told me you wanted it, but you know, so it's, it's, Managing investor expectations is also critical. Absolutely. Um, so I guess, and and yeah. making sure the investors understand that their portfolio is to meet their goals, not to meet their next door neighbor's goal, not to meet right, their Harvard right. Endowment's goals, right? Like the 60, 40, whatever their portfolio allocations are, they are client by client, right? Yeah. Like yeah. they are not, it's not one size fits all for everyone. And you really need to understand that and not get distracted by the shiny thing or the investment your neighbor made or what's on CNBC. That's human nature is going to always be, you know, keep up with the Joneses when you hear that story at the cocktail party. But if you can meet your plan, you're going to win and you should be very happy with it. Uh, And that's, that's, that's what we're here for. Thanks for listening to What's Your Basis from Schechter, a boutique financial services firm in Birmingham, Michigan, with Aaron Hodari, Chief Investment Officer, Joe Drost, Senior Investment Advisor, and Max Hunt, Vice President of Investments at Schechter. And don't forget, past performance is not indicative of future results. Our explanations here were solely for illustration and not based on actual returns. <laughs>